The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. I'm Molly Rollins, and the scripture reading today is from Mark chapter 8, verse 27, through chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. But he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said this to them plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you very much for reading that passage of scripture. Good morning, everyone. It's a great delight to be here with you. My name is Paul Lim. I've been serving here since 2016 as a scholar in residence. My other position is at uh, Vanderbilt, uh, serving there as a professor in the history of Christianity. So it's a great delight to be inhabiting both these worlds, thinking and struggling about faith and work. And so the third part of my uh, work identity is as the uh, senior advisor for content for NIFW, about which you've heard a good deal already. So um, believe it or not, uh, the Lent season has just begun. Uh, that had probably been the least thing on your mind, I don't know. A snowstorm took up most of our kind of minds and energies and endeavors, along with it allegation, revelation, and tragic confirmation about uh, massive moral failings of a Christian leader event of which has been happening all too often in our world makes for a particularly pressing Sunday to lean into Jesus, his word, both as it was read, as it will be proclaimed through the sermon, and more significantly and unfailingly through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So if you don't mind, would you join with me once again as we listen to the word of God uh, proclaimed? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, As I stand before you this morning, I feel like a hypocrite. Well, in fact, I am one. And yet you have given this frail individual the responsibility, 
the stupendous responsibility of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. That which is impossible with men is possible with God. So we submit ourselves to you now, as your word has been read, as it shall be proclaimed, as it shall be sacramentally communed. May you do your work for us and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going through uh, a series of studies on the Gospel of Mark, and we come to the eighth chapter and the eighth study, which we're calling Jesus our Christ. These three words are deceptively simple and straightforward, Jesus our Christ. But as we shall see, Jesus' redefinition, or shall we say fulfillment of the role as Christos or Messiah or um, the one who was anointed by God was anything but conventional. Furthermore, we come to a halfway point in Mark's presentation of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as he already began in the very beginning of his book, uh, in the very beginning verse, he says, my book, the reason for writing is to tell you about the good news of Jesus, who is the Messiah of the world. So here we are, ourselves in the middle or hastening toward the end of the worship liturgy here. And it's incumbent upon us to ask this question as, was, as it was asked nearly two, 20 years ago at a survey done in England among the regularly church-going Presbyterians, Baptists, and Anglicans. That's not the sum total of Christians in England at the time, but three representative bodies that are kind of arising out of the Protestant Reformation. So, and the question was, what do you really hope to receive from your religious observances in participation, was the question. What do you really hope to receive from your religious observances and participation? And summary of answers can be uh, formed as four Ps. Protection, provision, perspective, pathway. Protection from evil and in some ways suffering, I suppose, some said. Secondly, provision of daily bread and other necessary goods for the journey of life. Third would be perspective on making sense of life events. Fourthly, pathway into the next phase after death. I want us to think about our, our participation in today's worship liturgy, whether in person or remotely. What am I giving? What am I giving up? What am I hoping to get out of it? How would my life change, if at all, as a result of this? Why does this actually matter? In what ways does Jesus offer me and you protection, provision, perspective, and pathway? I think as someone who is participating in this worship service today, you have every right, indeed obligation, to ask that of yourself today. Today's text provides us a key pivot around which the entire gospel of Mark, or indeed the entire gospel of Jesus Christ, turns. Here we, as readers and worshipers, are faced squarely with the identity question of Jesus. Who is Jesus and why does it matter? There are three points I'd like to share with you today. No surprise there. And they're all phrased as questions. First point is, is Jesus the answer? Second point is, what's the question? Third is, who are you? Is Jesus the answer? What's the question? Who are you? I must make a comical, somewhat comical confession here. 
I got these three points from someone else. So these are not my own points. And the source of which is slightly unconventional. It's been quite some time now, but I do believe it was while in, I was in my 20s. So that's about 30 years ago. So that's a long time ago. I found myself having to take care of some business at Grand Central Station in New York City. The business was none other than sitting in a bathroom stall. And I don't know about you, but there were the days, these were the days before the advent of cell phones or iPads or laptops. And back in those days, I, much like other people, would read what's written on the bathroom stall doors. Have you ever done that? I do it all the time. On that particular occasion, now a lot of them are just kind of completely erased over so you can't see what's there, but back in those days, and I think it was actually kind of craved, I mean, yeah, carved onto the door. Maybe it was a wooden door. I, so I couldn't even remember that, but I remember what I saw there, right? So on that particular occasion, my eyes were fixated on these words. Someone had either carved or written, Jesus is the answer. That's the first point, right? And then another one, because the carving of handwriting appeared from a different kind of source, it said, what's the question? If Jesus is the answer, what is the question? And yet another line said, who the bleep are you? Forgetting the bleep part, so is Jesus, is Jesus the answer? What's the question? Who are you are the three points that I think are actually found in today's text. It's not just a superimposition of what's there. So we get sermon inspirations and illustrations from a lot of places, more often than not from C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien or Calvin or Mother Teresa or St. Francis of Assisi or John Stott. I'm afraid you're hearing a sermon today, though, whose, whose influence or inspiration came directly from a public bathroom stall in one of the busiest train stations in our nation. So the three points, once again, are, is Jesus the answer? We get that from verses 27 through 30. Second point is, what's the question? We get that from verses 31 through 33. Third, who are you? We get that from verses 34 to chapter 9, verse 1. So rather than superimposing these three grids onto today's text, I hope to show that they actually arise rather organically from the text itself. So let's move to the first point, shall we? Is Jesus the answer? So far, Jesus had fed 5,000 people, 4,000 people on separate occasions, and some have estimated they were actually just counting men. So if you count women and children, it could have easily been over 10,000 on each occasions, thereby massively enhancing his popular appeal. Imagine you go to a big outdoor event and they'll give you a free meal, regardless of the crowd size. So I'm going to that concert, right? I mean, so if that's a concert that's going to give me free meal every time I go, I'm going to say goodbye to Maroon 5 or Foo Fighters or Kendrick Lamar, Cardi B, Wynton Marsalis or Celtic Woman or Andrew Peterson or Sandra McCracken. You take your pick of musical choice of that concert. You get the picture. You're not going to go to that concert, but free food, free lunch for 15,000 people, 12,000 people. Free meals would be a huge boon for your popularity. So Jesus did that. In addition to feeding miracles, however, he had healed a paralytic. He restored a demon-possessed man. He raised a dead girl, healed a sick woman. He has sent out the 12 disciples to proclaim more broadly his message of the kingdom of God. Moreover, he had walked on water, opened the eyes of a blind man. These are all from the short gospel of Mark. These are the things that he had done so far. 
Are you with me? That means there is a mounting sense of excitement, popularity. People are beginning to ask, is this guy the answer for us? So this surrounding the identity of this Jesus who basically came from nowhere. He came from, I don't know, Grundy County, Tennessee. Um, if you're from Grundy County, Tennessee, please don't take offense, but I, I had to look up what is the poorest county in the state of Tennessee and Grundy County is at the bottom, then according to the census. So Jesus came from no man's town. I mean, Nazareth is basically a place where no significant individual will be coming from. And here he was. And people are beginning to ask, is this guy, could this person be the one that we've been waiting for? For those followers of John the Baptist, the fire and brimstone preacher who preached repentance for baptism, they were holding to this despair and despondency because, as you recall, in this gospel of Mark, he was, as Mark records in chapter 6, beheaded ironically at a banquet hosted by King Herod. So we come to today's text with this first point and the question, is Jesus the answer? The question was this, was he the Messiah they had been waiting for? There were trailblazing signs of his formerly obscure yet now immensely popular teacher, miracle worker that he might be. So is he the answer? They are not going around in the villages in Caesarea Philippi and Jesus asked this question, who do people say I am? And it's the right kind of time and, uh, and, uh, and, and the situation was such that they are now going through, having done all of these miracles, people are beginning to ask questions about who is that person. He would often ask questions that capture what was already on the minds of his audience or his disciples. This is no exception right here. There was a swirl of curiosity and interest in the identity of this man. According to N.T. Wright, one of our generation's leading biblical scholars, is a professor of New Testament at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, he said, what Jesus had been doing notably for Mark, the healings, the battles with evil, the extraordinary feedings, stilling of storms, and so on, are signs that this is indeed the moment when the true God is beginning to exercise God's power. Finally, the disciples have taken a further step Jesus is not announced, just announcing the kingdom. He says, now he is the king. Not all Jews desired or expected a messianic figure to come, but given the fact that it had been about five centuries since their return from exile during the Ezra-Nehemiah period, and then the Roman capture of Jerusalem in 63 BC or BCE, you take your pick there, meant that there was already mounting messianic longing and anticipation among some more religiously zealous folks. No matter how you sliced it, the messianic figure had, been, had to be a politically engaged figure who will vanquish the power of those who stood against the shalom of God and the people of Israel. And I'll say more about what they were expecting the Messiah to be because that, I think, is very, very pivotal in our understanding of Peter's response to what Jesus says. Okay? The answers from the people were illuminating, weren't they? Some say John the Baptist. Well, he's already dead, but somehow maybe he's back to life. Or some others say he's your Elijah. Elijah, remember, had never died, right? So they're thinking maybe he's come back to life. So there was a lot of this kind of popular religious imagination that was capturing this whole sense of messianic longing. They're waiting for the Messiah because life had been very, very hard. They don't have political agency and autonomy. Rome basically left them alone, but Rome at times made sure that Israel knew that Rome and not Israel was in charge. And they would often do so more than anything else by two ways, taxation 
and crucifixion, right? Tax and prisons, tax and death penalty, basically. That's their cruel way of reminding them, we are in charge and not you. And so if you're a very, very pious Jew, you want the Messiah to come in. You're going, this, you're going to want this Messiah to be someone who is going to contradict and contravene the ways of Rome. But as we shall see, what Jesus says about himself looks like, sounds like he's going to be a loser compared to Rome. I'm getting ahead of myself here. It is interesting about this popular perception of Jesus as they connected him, quite rightly so, in line with Elijah, the greatest prophet since Moses in the history of Israel, and John the baptizer who was seen as a precursor of the Messianic era. So they were right in kind of capturing some gist of the Messianic kind of theology that was already part of the Old Testament and also in the in-between period the so-called intertestamental period or second temple Judaism. So we get kind of snippets and pictures of that in these verses here, all right? But then Jesus turned the question on to his disciples, what about you? While it might be interesting, even entertaining to, to discuss the various ways other people's opinions about Jesus was right or wrong, the most crucial answer to that question had to come from you. Without skipping a beat, almost Peter answered and said, you are the Messiah. The Hebrew word Messiah and the Greek word Christos were referring to the same one, the anointed one. Traditionally, kings and priests and prophets were anointed with oil for their particular task. But by the time that Jesus was born and Jesus began to do his ministry during this period called Pax Romana, the Roman peace, there is one of the nations that was subjugated under Roman peace was this nation called Israel. And Jesus comes out of nowhere and he begins to proclaim the good news. And people are saying, maybe he is it. So, and so by the time of Jesus' ministry, these were the common understandings and expectations about the messianic figure. They were one, so this is a 10 list that I got from this very well-known scholar of New Testament and Judaism. It says that messianic understanding in this time period, they thought that Elijah would come before the Messiah. That's why they're saying about this Elijah. And then the Messiah would come, and then the Messiah will unleash this last assault on the hostile powers that stand opposed to the God of Israel. Fourth, there will be the destruction of the powers that stood against Yahweh. Fifthly, there will be renewal of Jerusalem. So as a local place, Jerusalem will receive this kind of revival and renewal. Sixthly, there will be gathering of the dispersed people of Israel that they will come back to Israel. And seventhly, there is a kingdom of glory in the Holy Land. Eighthly, there is a renewal of the world. Ninthly, there will be general resurrection. Tenthly, there will be the last judgment, eternal blessing and perdition. So that was the sort of in a, in a, in a chock full kind of condensed version of the messianic expectation that they were longing for that Messiah to come in the first century AD, right, right then. And in some ways, if you think about it, I don't have the time to go into the details, but this is also part of what many were expecting of the Messiah and are expecting even about Israel and the, the, the role that Israel plays in today's political economy and so on. Peter's answer was the right one, wasn't it? Jesus was the Messiah, the long-awaited one who will restore the kingdom to Israel. You see, friends, peppered throughout the four Gospels in the book of Acts, we see what people's expectations were about Jesus as the Messiah. So is Jesus the answer? The answer is yes and no. 
And I'll unpack that in just a little bit in my, in my second point. So let's hurry on to that. What is the question? Is Jesus the answer? Second point is, what's the question? And that there we will spend a lot more time on this. So his disciples, his disciples are super pumped. Hey, we're not following just any teacher. We're actually hanging out with the Messiah. Talk about the increased self-esteem based on the, my association with someone popular, prominent, and powerful. You can drop his name anytime you want, and people will take, stand up and take notice of you, right? You know, if you're a basketball fan, and if I were to tell you, you know, I was playing one-on-one, you know, with uh, MJ the other day, and they'll be like, who's MJ? He's like, well, don't you know MJ? I, I, I don't even tell you. Michael Jordan, of course. And you know, or I was, you know, let's say you're into music and you say, you know, I was having lunch with thus and such, you know, some big music producer or some big artist. Then as a result of that, your self-worth is kind of kicked up a notch. You know what I'm talking about, right? You can tell your friends, yes, I was having lunch with the Messiah. Did I tell you that he's the Messiah, not a Messiah? Yes, so we were enjoying our regular one-on-one today. Me and the Messiah, by the way, Peter or James and John would say. And so they found this Messiah. They made this confession. Imagine that. But here's a huge plot twister. You ready for this? Because we often undervalue the plot twister that there was here. Let me make two very important disclaimers. One... Peter was a Jew, obviously. Jesus, too, was a Jew also. Meaning this, that we need to understand something about the Judaism of Jesus and the disciples in order to understand the shock value that was there for Peter as Jesus began to explain to him, okay, good, you got that answer right, I am the Messiah, but let me tell you, let me let you in on the messianic secret here. And that's, there, were, there was that plot twister right there. You see in verse 31, it reads, Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days must rise again. We have become so desensitized and sanitized into just believing that, yeah, we are Christians and Peter was a Christian and Jesus was a Christian. No, 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 no. We, are, we have this huge benefit, two millennia benefit, of having had Christians talk about this passage, explain it to us. But I don't know about you, friends, but if I had been there in the first century, hearing these words of Jesus, I don't think I would have become a Christian. I don't think I'd follow Jesus. And I bet you 90% of you, maybe 95%, would have done the same thing. I mean, think about the conservative estimate of the population in Jesus' time in Jerusalem was about a million, 800,000 to a million. At the death of Jesus, in the ascension of Jesus, you know how many followers he had? Less than 5,000. That's a very, very tiny percent of the population. Less than 1% of the population of his people followed Jesus. 99%, statistically speaking, missed him when he came. So don't, let's not be so overconfident like, oh, those morons just didn't get him. I would have gotten him and I would have understood. No, no, no. That is a form of gospel self-righteousness I want to add, which is what I have a plenty and I think a lot of you have a plenty too. Not gospel righteousness, but gospel self-righteousness. Somehow looking down on the first century Jews as if they were like morally inferior or theologically just, you know, bunk. No. 
They were waiting for the Messiah, and according to their understanding of the Messiah, the one that was supposed to come was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, where do I get that language from? If you know your Bible, Acts chapter 1, after Jesus was resurrected, the disciples ask him, the question is, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And what was Jesus' response? says, you know, the day, you know, it's only the Father knows, but when you receive power, then you become my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That is the precursor. That, that preceding question was, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Let me say this again, friends. I can't say this enough. The followers of Jesus themselves didn't understand the messianic identity until he was resurrected. John makes it very, very clear. John says, and in Mark's gospel too, Jesus tells his followers three times about the impending death. And Mark says that they didn't get it. John chapter 2 says, after he was resurrected, and only then did they understand the scriptures and the identity of Jesus. Are you with me? So this is a very, very important plot twister right here. So Peter then in verse 33 takes aside Jesus and begins to rebuke him. And by the way, it's the same word that is used to uh, describe what Jesus does to Peter. So in the same vehement fashion, Peter says, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. According to Matthew chapter 16, Mark is relatively terse here in describing what Peter said or didn't say. But what we do know is that Peter said, no, 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 you're not going to do this. And I think it was quite important matter because Peter had to set Jesus aside. He didn't want to embarrass him in front of his other 11 friends. So he says, come over here, please. Let me tell you something. What you're saying is craziness. What you're saying makes no sense. We know the Messiah is going to come and crush, crush Rome. We know the Messiah will come and restore the kingdom to Israel. But you're saying that you're going to die? You're, gonna say, you're, you're saying you're going to be betrayed and, and you're going to be suffered? And this makes zero sense to me. So he began to rebuke him. And then Jesus turns to him and says, you know what? Get behind me, Satan, because you don't have the things of God in mind, but things of humans in mind. Here's an important thing to remember. What Jesus began to teach made no sense at all. Zero, zilch. We tend to grossly underestimate the shock value of what Jesus said, which was completely antithetical to what, the, what our norms are about, truth, beauty, and goodness about the Messiah. Yet this new work of Jesus has several aspects that were quite cryptic, meaning kind of hard to understand, if not downright strange. We are really expecting the Messiah to come. I mean, imagine that you elect a new president or new senator, and what, what, what do they do? Rather than going to Washington, D.C., they go to Alaska and begin to work in an oil field. They'd be like, what? That makes no sense. What are you doing over there? And you sound, that sounds kind of crazy, right? And that to a pious Jew, this is what Jesus is saying. I'm going to be handed over, and I'm going to actually be crucified, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to, and I'm going to bear the cross? Makes zero sense. The Messiah was supposed to fight against the enemies of Israel, not get in trouble with Israel's own teachers. This Messiah was supposed to prove victorious over the sworn enemies of the shalom of God, and yet he was going to be killed at the hands of the Roman soldiers? What kind of crackpot Messiah will spew out insane, illogical prattle about him getting killed by the authorities? Here is a historical illustration that made great sense to me here. 
So how did Jewish and Christian understanding of the Messiah differ and diverge? Because, you know, if you study the first century Judaism and the beginning of Christianity, by the end of first century, by the time that the Gospels are written, there's a pretty clearly divergent Messianic understandings. This is a very important point to consider, and so let me give you that example. There was a, a book written in the second century by this na- uh, person named Justin um, Justin the Martyr, Justin Martyr, he wrote this book called Dialogue with Trifo. And Trifo was a Jewish uh, uh, a person, and he's uh, dialoguing with Justin, and Justin writes about that. And, and Trifo the Jew said, be assured that our whole tribe of Israel also awaits the Messiah. And we confess that all the scriptures that you cite, you Christian cite, speaks of the Messiah. I admit that the name Jesus inclines me toward, a, toward such a view. However, we highly doubt whether the Messiah should be dishonorably crucified in this way. That's the crux of the matter right there. They're saying, okay, we, are, we believe that the Messiah is supposed to come, but we are 100% certain that Messiah will not die in a crucified fashion. Why? He wrote, for cursed is the one who is crucified, Deuteronomy 21, 23, as it says in the Torah, so that on this point I'm very skeptical. It is clear that the scriptures proclaim the Messiah must suffer, but whether it is through a suffering cursed in the Torah, namely hanging on a tree, we want to know whether you Christians can show proof of this. To me, that really beautifully encapsulates the tension between Jewish messianic expectation and Christian messianic expectation. The reason why I go on and on about this is part of my job is, no, not part, my job is to nerd out on the Bible and the history of how the Bible was interpreted. That's my job. And secondly, it's really, really important that you understand this part because they were, the major turning point was about the crucifixion of this Messiah. Trifo says, you know what? We try to, I mean, this just doesn't make sense. How can the Messiah be cursed? Because the Torah, the law of God in Deuteronomy says, everyone who is hanging on a tree is cursed. But let me give you an example of the Christian kind of Christological recalibration, right? Christian kind of messianic recalibration that we see not anywhere else, but in the Bible. Galatians chapter three, you may be familiar with this word, this verse, 313. Ready for this? It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. You know what Paul had done? He had turned this verse and turned it over and said, you know what? Jesus became the curse. And that is the real beauty of this kind of ironic spiritual jujitsu that Paul does here in Galatians 3.13. Yes, that curse on a tree is for real. Because all of us are recipients of that curse. All of us should be receiving that curse. But the beauty of the gospel says Jesus, this twister, you know, plot twister of the Messiah, comes and dies in our place, dies not as a bad man, but as a cursed man. Cursed by God, deemed to be unworthy by the Jews, and also as a criminal by the Romans. So you got the trifecta of cursedness. God, your own people, and your enemies. And Jesus became exactly that. That's precisely why Peter says what he says. You see this, friends? Not only was it repugnant vis-a-vis the Torah, but it was also to have someone crucified would be deep embarrassment to the eyes of the Romans. If I'm a nice, pious Jew, to have my leader, my powerful leader, be handed over and be crucified by my enemies would be a terrible embarrassment. 
How am I going to talk about power when my leader has been crucified? How am I going to be talking about you know, power when my CEO has been handcuffed and going to jail? That company is a bunk, isn't it? That's what Peter is going on about. Messiahs don't get killed by religious or political authorities, do they? That kind of Messiah would prove himself precisely to be a false Messiah, not a real one. So what's the question? It would be rephrased as, wait, 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 what? It was a true WTFN moment for Peter and his 11 colleagues. WTFN, what's this fake news? I don't understand. Like, this is totally fake. I don't get this. Peter rebuked him, then Jesus' response to Peter's rebuke was to rebuke him and say, get behind me, Satan. He was just moments ago singled out as the, ones, you know, uh, the one whose testimony will build the church, and now he's a devil incarnate himself. What is going on? Here's what's going on. If Jesus is really the Lord, then you can't say never Lord. Right? I mean, if Jesus is really the Lord, you can't say never Lord. As strange as this may seem to Peter, he should have said, you know what, I don't get it, but I'm going to try to follow you. It makes no sense to me, but just as you told me to come out onto the water and I did, I'm going to try to do the same thing. Just as I fished all night and couldn't catch any fish, but you say cast your net over there, I'm going to do it. So I think these were tests of faith and recalibration of this massive messianic understanding. Because all, not just Peter, Peter as a representative figure, really spoke for the people. He, along with thousands and ten thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, were expecting the Messiah to come and kick Romans' butts. And Christ says, no, I'm actually going to be crucified. Don't we do that? Here we see Peter inadvertently rebuking and correcting Jesus' own terms of his mission and identity. I do that. I custom design my terms of engagement with God according to my desires, according to my conditions. Otherwise, I'm simply going to cancel my subscription to Jesus. Talk about cancel culture. I cancel Jesus because I don't want to follow you in that. What you're asking of me is too much. I'm going to either redefine my terms of the contract or I'm just going to have to cancel you because you're asking too much. The moment I become the adjudicator of what is suitable, palatable, or true about the call of Jesus and who he is, what questions he answers, and how he answers them, I have in mind not the concerns of God, but my own concern that trump everything else, including Jesus. That leads us to our third and the final point. Who are you? For the first point was, is Jesus the answer? Yes, he is the Messiah. Then what's the question? The question had to do with reevaluating our own life priorities and perspectives based on the answer that he provides, not one that we think he should provide. The answer that he provided for Peter and the disciples was that he's going to be the Messiah of a very different order. And Peter had to kind of come to that tough and, and embarrassing moment of saying, well, you are actually doing the work of Satan because you don't have in mind the things of God. When God says this is what it's going to be, then you better at least make an attempt to follow that. And I'm going to make that possible, Jesus says, as we'll see here. The third point is, who are you? In other words, not only does Jesus redefine his own messianic mission, he redefines who we are. Let me say that again. Not only Jesus redefines what people are expecting of this messianic mission, he, in doing so, redefines who we are. If we are to call ourselves his followers, let's read these words in verse 34. 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Again, we tend to sanitize these words. When Jesus said these words, I think he meant quite literally, just take up your cross. The cross is not some kind of object that we see hanging over there as an object of adoration and religious, you know, kind of devotion. No, no, no. Back in the first century, if you saw a cross, it'll be equivalent to an electric chair. It'll be equivalent to some kind of lethal injection. This is a sign and a symbol of death and extermination of your life breath. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. I don't know about you, but these are really, really impossible command. And yet Jesus, the loving Lord, the unconditional lover and the creator of all things seen and unseen, says these words, what for? What is he asking of us? What is he offering us? These are important questions. I gotta take up my cross, that meant death to me, deep shame and terrible besmirching of my family reputation. Is that what it means to follow Jesus? Then here's Jesus' challenge based on the unconditional love he offers. Yes, it sounds cryptic, if not crazy, yet this was the only way, the only way we could really come to see ourselves, to have any hope for salvation from my own, my own self. It is basically Jesus is pushing us to the brink of just gasping for air. You're about to be exhausted and ready to expire, and then Jesus will come and rescue. I, you know, these words bring us to the point of recognizing that I, religion is not going to cut it. Me doing X, Y, and Z, and all these observances and participation, they are not going to do it. Let me disappoint you a little bit. By coming to church does not make you a better Christian. By tuning into the radio or the internet does not make you a better Christian. By better Christian, we mean somehow you are qualified to be in the presence of God. No, it is always and only the behest of God. God takes the first initiative in creating. God takes the first initiative in recreating us. And that to me is how I understand Christianity. And all classical Christianity said, God is the one, the lover, who requires nothing else but our declaration of utter and absolute bankruptcy and hypocrisy. I can come no other way. And that means me. So let's watch this. Jesus says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Ironic truth. What good is it for someone to gain the entire world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Verses 35 through 37. This is what I think he's saying here. Very important. What Jesus is saying is giving us a kind of an inverted perspective on life. Both in the first century and 21st century, we think that having lots of possessions is a good thing. Because Jesus says, you know, what can anyone, if you gain the entire world and yet you lose your soul, what's going to be become of you? What is better? Jesus is saying that which you cannot see, that which the world may not regard as that important, is the important thing, the most important thing. You think you'll find your life and trust true self-worth by trying to have it by achievement and accomplishment and performance. And we all think that in different ways. And this, you know, this, this acronym that I talked about earlier, PBSW, performance-based self-worth. We all have it, right? I mean, like, as one of the things that I began to do as a result of COVID is uh, I picked up, uh, you know, something I did when I was younger is cycling. And you know, it's really, I, I realize that this is a very, very insidious idolatry. 
I really look at how my time has gotten better, and that becomes my own sense of self-worth. And I do seem to derive greater satisfaction by go, you know, dropping 17 seconds than reading 17 chapters of the Bible. There's something profoundly wrong with my own performance-based self-worth. So if you think that you'll find and save your life by basing it on you, your accomplishment, and your power rating, Jesus says, you will lose it. But whoever does loses oneself in me and for the sake of my gospel, you will find it. So who are you? I find myself precisely by losing it in Jesus. By becoming nothing, I become everything. As Augustine said, Lord, fill me with more and more of you and less and less of me, so that only through that I find more and more of my true self. Another way to see it is this. The gospel, rightly understood and applied, decenters us from our tiny thrones and re-centers us in Jesus because the throne cannot be occupied by two. It has to be one. The gospel, rightly understood and applied, decenters me from my own throne. Whatever it is that I do, Jesus is basically saying we will find our ultimate self-worth always based on performance. The question is, whose performance? Jesus is here saying, unless you base your identity on my performance as the Messiah with a twisted plot who redefines our terms of messianic mission, you will lose your life. You'll be left with nothing but hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay, as C.S. Lewis wrote in the last, last paragraph of Mere Christianity. But he writes, but instead, give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Last point, hurriedly, I'd like for us to ponder together is this. Live with the judgment to come in view. Jesus talks about him coming back with the angels to judge and yet not with fear because the judge is your justifier. The judge who is coming is the one who has justified you. For the past few years of my teaching at Vandy, I read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with my grad students in a seminar. I know that some parents read it with their kids now too, and I know that's something that happens a lot. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, if you haven't read it, I really want to encourage you to read it because it, more than anything else, is a powerful snapshot and window into our own souls. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are two persons from one individual, basically. Dr. Jekyll is a respected scientist, and Mr. Hyde is a repulsive, cruel, and murderous alter ego of Dr. Jekyll that is created. The two keep separate, compartmentalized lives until the will and testament of Dr. Jekyll reveals the true identities of the two characters, Dr. Henry Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I have Dr. Jekyll, I have Mr. Hyde. You have your Dr. Jekyll and you have your Mr. Hyde. The two are always within us, whether you look at the example of Paul in Romans chapter seven, where he says, what I don't want to do, I end up doing, and although I delight in the law of God, for I do not do what the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. The only way to reconcile Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is by submitting these two identities to Jesus and surrendering my desire to call the shot. Waste your shot and giving it to Jesus, then your life will be never wasted. Try to find it on your own, you will lose it. Seek it with your wealth, accomplishments, fake humility, you will always lose it. 
They're not meant to love you, give you, or, or give you the abiding sense of joy and acceptance and eternal embrace. We look for it in all the wrong places. Let Jesus redefine the terms of the covenant. It'll feel like death, but you will come out of, on the other side as a new creature. So friends, what are you waiting for? What are you afraid of? What am I waiting for? What am I afraid of? Let's go to Jesus, knowing that he alone is the answer, no matter what the questions might be, and he will ask us, who are you, by reminding us as to whose we are. Let's come to the table with that eager anticipation of belonging to Jesus, our Lord and the Anointed One. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this time to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for the delight of being called your own children. Lord, as we have done what we can in order to give due credit to your wondrous name and glory, we come to this segment in our worship service where we receive most humbly and helplessly the gift that has been offered to us, not because of our desert, but because of your grace. We come to the table to receive the body of Christ broken and blood of Jesus shed for the salvation of our cosmos here. So may you do that work of sealing our covenant commitment to you. Our hearts are always wayward. Our hearts are always running away from you. So you, as the hound of heaven, do please come after us with your grace, with your steadfast will to restore and to cause us rejoice and rest in you again. In your name we pray, amen.